singing. You ought to give yourself a hand clap this morning for that because I know many of you, yeah, it's good. Many of you are still asleep, so I know that uh, singing might have woke you up a little bit, and uh, if we don't get you awake, I may put you to sleep in just a couple minutes. I'm known to do that with some of you. I, I got my eye on you, the ones who sleep every week. I know who you are, and so I'm just letting you know right now. You're on notice. Don't go to sleep today. I'm kidding. I don't really think anybody sleeps routinely in here. Some of us, you know, you'll have a bad Saturday night. You've been up too late, and it's, it's understandable it's from time to time. You, Kind of got my my grandpa used to say he had a a button in his backside. I'll say it that way because we're in church. But uh, every time he'd sit down, his eyes would close. Kind of like those baby dolls that our girls have. You lay them down, their eyes go back. So I understand that sort of syndrome. But uh, this Sunday is always a difficult Sunday to be in church because for whatever reason that uh, daylight savings time creeps up on us, even though. We know about it, we hear about it on TV, we see it in the newspaper. If you watch the newspaper as a church, we send out notices, it was in the bulletin last week, plan for this, set your clocks back. In fact, I would even go a step further, don't just set your clock back, go to sleep an hour early because you're going to lose an hour, so go ahead and recoup that on the front end by going to bed early on Saturday. But we're glad you're here this morning and I'm glad you're awake and I want to invite you to take your Bible then. And find your place in the short letter of Jude, right there on the heel or on the on the edge of the book of Revelation. So turn in your New Testament all the way to the book of Revelation, go back one book, and you'll find yourself there in Jude. And we're going to be in verses five through sixteen this morning. Uh, somebody this morning, I'm sure, when you came in, you were struggling, and uh, life this week, whatever the circumstances may have been, was difficult. And so you kind of came in today with a lot of baggage. Perhaps most, if not all of us, came in in some form or fashion like that today. And so this morning, us just singing the songs that we sing has been a good reminder that we serve a God who is stronger than anything that you're carrying today. Stronger than any difficulty that you have. Stronger than any debt you may owe. We serve a great God who does great things for His people. He's ever fighting for us. Which is a great reminder because we live in a world that's dark, don't we? We live in a world that is difficult. We live in a world that is, let's just go ahead and say it, we live in a world that is evil. In fact, this past week, I probably you saw these as well, I saw two headlines and read two articles because the headlines drew me in so much. Two horrific headlines. They literally broke my heart and at the same time drove me to to, to a place of anger and uh, just... I, I, I want to say rage, but I wasn't necessarily going to act on it, but I wanted to act on it if I could. The first was an article on Chris Watts. He's serving a, uh, a life sentence, three consecutive life sentences for the murders of his pregnant wife and two daughters. You've probably heard of this guy in Colorado recently, last fall, um, condemned or convicted of these murders and now serving these life sentences. In this article, it described in detail his heinous actions. Apparently, he's kind of coming clean and telling all of the things that happened during those murders. He confessed to strangling his wife there in his home, taking her body down to his truck, loading his two girls, three and four years up old, and driving with them and her, his wife's body in that truck 45 minutes away to an oil field where he, uh, I guess, had been working out there in the middle of nowhere. Then he took the blanket of one of those daughters and smothered one and then went back to the truck and smothered the other one. Just telling the story puts me in a fit of rage. 
Then I read a second article. It was an article talking about a family in Georgia where a 14-year-old girl had been kept apparently for years in a small dog cage, starved, beaten, and then finally when she died from all of this torture, she was buried in the backyard of her home next to her older brother who probably, uh, it seems like, was killed uh, or, or died from all this torture as well the year or two years before that. She was literally tortured to death to death by those who are closest to her, tortured to death by those who should have loved her and protected her. And so as a human being, as a dad, and as a dad of girls, when I read stories like this and hear of these atrocities, it puts me in a fit of rage. I read these two stories this week, and I just began to think about how in the world could anyone do something so evil? How could anyone treat another human being like that? And, and so I, I felt extreme sorrow and pity for these young children who have endured such evil atrocities against them. And then it moved from sorrow and pity for them, and it began to move to anger and rage, and it began to be a, 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 an emotion well up, welling up within me where I'm literally driving down the road thinking about this article that I read, and I thought, man, you give me five minutes with these people, and I'll show them justice. Right? Have you ever been there in your life? When you see atrocities like that, and you say, I will bring just to this, justice to this situation. And I began to think, well... What they've done is so outrageous and so heinous. Five minutes with them and a simple death is too much or too little. They've tortured for years. They've put people's lives literally in an in, in earthly hell. What they deserve is everything that they gave to those people, to those children. So I begin to think, boy, I, I would love to have about a year with them and just do everything to them that they did to those that they hurt so bad. And then God's word, as it always does, takes you to a place where you need to be. And I began to realize, vengeance isn't mine. Though if that act was taking place and I saw it, me acting, that's not vengeance. That's standing in and, and defending the helpless. But I'm not in that situation. The state, the government has stepped in as they rightly should and is dispensing God's justice in this situation. But God's word reminded, reminded me there in Hebrews 10.30, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay God will repay. He will bring justice. And he does it in a number of ways. You see, justice is being served upon these people for their crimes through the government, through the state. God has orchestrated, instituted that to, to bring justice to unjust situations. The Bible also assures us that if they don't repent of sin in their life, then they will ultimately and eternally pay for their sin. Justice will be brought to those situations in a place called hell. And in that moment, as I was thinking about these atrocities and thinking about these poor girls and a pregnant wife and, and two children who were literally caged and treated like animals, God's word began to bring relief to my heart knowing that God understands and God is not aloof. God is actually working and moving in these situations. I just needed to stand back and trust him. And when you think about that, standing back, it, it sounds a lot easier than it is to actually do. But it's exactly what we must do. Standing back sometimes, at least for me, I'm sort of an aggressive type guy in some situations. It may seem passive. Perhaps that's why it's so hard to stand back. 
sometimes standing back and just waiting upon God or waiting upon others to, to do what they need to do may seem delayed because we want instantaneous justice. Standing back and resting in God's justice, that's never a passive act. It is simply a calm and assertive trust in God's faithfulness to two things, His Word and to His character. Last Sunday as we began this short letter written by Jude, we began this three-week study looking at what this early church leader had to say about the condition threatening the church. You see, Jude was the half-brother of Jesus along with James, his other brother, And Jude here is calling believers there in verse 3 to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So the greatest threat to the church has never been from outside. As I said last Sunday, the greatest threat to the church, the greatest threat to our faith is an internal threat. It's when those who would come in and and take the word of God and twist it and, and cast doubt upon it, that is the greatest threat to the church. It's nothing to do with government or, or um, social pressures upon us or upon the church. In fact, those typically expand the influence of the church. As Tertullian uh, said many, many years ago, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So the greatest threat to the church has always been false teaching. Because it's subtle and it's severe. It makes a spiritual poison that makes the people of God and the word of God seem toxic. Jude here wrote his letter to believers to encourage them to stand strong against the spiritual deceptions that threaten to bring havoc in the church. He also wrote to expose false teachers and and show them for what they were. And in this letter, he calls believers to stand. And that's what we're talking about over these three Sundays. That as the people of God, as the church of God, we must stand. We don't stand in our own power. We don't stand in our own intellect and our own abilities. We stand upon God's word and we stand for what God stands for. And so we must stand. And last Sunday, we saw that we need to stand up. And we need to take what he says there in verse 3, literally. We need to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. This morning, I want us to see that we not only, not only stand up, but we need to also stand back. And that's the title of the message this morning. We need to stand back and allow God's justice to flow. Look with me in verse 5, and let's just read this passage. Then I'm going to come back and um, share with you three truths that Jude is sharing with us this morning. Verse 5, he says, Now I want to remind you, Although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. 
These are hidden reefs at your love's feast as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Last Sunday, three points that we learned were that we are to cherish our salvation, we're to champion our faith, and we're to combat the perversion that comes against God's truth. And we do all of this, as Jude moves on in this letter, we do all of this by resting in the certainty of God's justice. That's what it means to stand back. See, as we contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, as we champion our faith and, and speak much of Jesus and, and take the word of God and proclaim it to others, we are doing two things. We're pointing people to Jesus, championing faith in Christ, and at the same time combating the perversion that threatens it. And as we do all of that, we rest by standing back in the justice of God, knowing the three things that we're going to see this morning, three truths that Jude here gives us that encourages us to stand back in a world that seeks to destroy our faith as well as our future. First thing that we see here is this, the Lord sees. The Lord sees. Verses 8 through 13, we just read this, and so I'm not going to read it Again, but 8 through 13, we see here how the Lord sees the manner and the lifestyle, these men, perhaps even women, who were teaching different doctrines and seeking to persuade and lead people astray, that they are working on behalf of the enemy to corrupt the church. Here in these verses, Jude describes these false, false teachers who threaten God's church, and he does so reinforcing what we also see from Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 3, and so chapter 2, if you have your Bible, just turn over a few pages to 2 Peter chapter 2. And I want us to look at what Peter has to say about this same threat against the church. 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Look on down to the second part of chapter, or uh, verse 10, I should say. He says, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. 
They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaken the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who, lo- who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Verse 17. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. As you read these two different passages, do you see the similarities in between what Peter is saying and what Jude is saying. Scholars are in debate about who wrote first. Was it Second Peter written before Jude, or was Jude reckon, written and then Second Peter? We don't know which is which. If you went and looked at all the different scholars, the conservative scholars, they would probably line up 50-50. That's pretty much what I've seen in my study over the last several weeks. It really doesn't matter who wrote first. Both of them are speaking, thus saith the Lord. Both of them are speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Both of them are saying the same thing. They're warning us against false teachers who seek to threaten the doctrine of God's Word, the teaching of God's Word. And so here we see Peter laying it out, Jude laying out, and the truth that we're seeing is this. God sees what these false teachers are doing. And he begins to... he. Outlies or lays out the identity of what these false teachers are like. He says they are dreamers. They're, they're the ones living in a dream world of Satan's delusion, going back to Jude, verse 8. They've rejected God's truth, in other words, and they're feeding their minds on false doctrines that, that feed their egos. They inflate them. They make them feel good about themselves. It encourages more and more rebellion, verse 10. Jude says they are fleshly. They're living to satisfy nothing more than animistic lusts within their hearts. They're blasphemers, speaking evil of God. You say, how are they blasphemers? Are they taking the Lord's name in vain? Blasphemy is more than just taking the Lord's name in vain, though that's at the root, the base of what it means to blaspheme God. But blasphemy is more than just that. It takes on more of a ramification. A person blasphemes God when he or she takes God's word lightly and even jests about it, or when he or she deliberately defies God, uh, basically taunting God to judge him or her. This is what it means to blaspheme God. You see, if you say it and you hear the word of God, maybe in a preaching service like this, or maybe you're on TV or on the radio, or someone sitting over coffee shares the gospel with you and tries to point you to Jesus, and you just like, no, nah, I, don't, I don't need that. In and of itself, that is a blasphemous statement. That is exactly what you need in your life. You need the truth of God's word. You need a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so these people distort God's word. They, they, they marginalize God's word. They taunt God. In, a, in an attempt to defy him. Jude here describes them doing what even the archangel Michael dared not to do. It's an interesting uh, statement he makes here. He says, even when, when, when Michael was, was uh, debating about the body of Moses with Satan, he did not call or, or speak against him. Instead, he says, the Lord rebuke him. He didn't put himself in that situation. 
He understood his place. He understood that in the hierarchy of the angels, when it was all perfect and good, he was under Lucifer. And so he didn't have the power of Lucifer, and he didn't have the power of Jesus, so he just kept himself in the middle, and he said, the Lord rebuke. He didn't put himself in a position that these false teachers were putting themselves in. Jude here assures us that the Lord sees And the Lord knows the sin of those who seek to harm his people. That's why he goes in such detail to lay out what these people are like. Verse 11 tells us, woe to them. You see, Jesus knows their sin. He knows their their atrocities. He knows the judgment that's coming against them. Thus the, the, the statement, woe to them, before he describes all of their sin. Let's look at what he says about this sin. He says they walk in the way of Cain. What does it mean to to walk in the way of Cain? The way of Cain is religion rather than faith. You see, God made it clear back in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned. He made it clear that, that the only way to a right relationship with God was through a blood sacrifice. Death had to happen. In other words, for, for salvation or for forgiveness to take place, something had to die. And so in the garden there in Genesis 3.21, just before that chapter ends, the Bible tells us that Adam and Eve were clothed with the skins of an animal before they were kicked out of the garden. That's a picture of redemption. That's a picture of the grace of God. God could have cursed them even more by kicking them out and, and never inviting them back to in a relationship with him because that had been severed the moment they ate of that fruit. But God in his grace, God in his mercy, God in his love reached out to them and covered them with these skins that were sacrificed. I believe personally that these were the skins of a lamb. It fits to the, <clears throat> the rest of the story of salvation that a lamb was to be slain for the forgiveness of sin. And so this is the way of faith rather than the way of works. Cain rejected that. Cain rejected this divinely authorized way. And in chapter 4 of Genesis, verse 3, we see that Cain, rather than bringing a blood offering like his brother Abel did, Cain brought something from the field. He brought something that he worked up. He brought something that he did, and he offered it to the Lord, and the Lord rejected it. See, the way of Cain is righteousness based on one's character and based upon one's good works. It's the way of pride. It's the establishment of one's own righteousness and rejecting righteousness from God through faith in Jesus Christ. That is the way of Cain. And Jude tells us that these people who were seeking to harm the church by teaching a different doctrine were not pointing people to Jesus. They're pointing people to religion and good works. Not only did they do that, they abandoned themselves to Balaam's error. <clears throat> Do you remember the story of Balaam, the prophet Balaam there in Numbers 22, 23, and 24? Balaam was summoned by King Balak because the people of Israel were coming toward his land and he wanted this great prophet to pronounce a curse upon the people of God and Balaam was for hire. Balaam said, sure, I'll come for a price, but I just need to tell you that whatever the Lord tells me to say, that's what I will say. But he was still for hire. You see, the, the, the way of Balaam, when the Balaam's error is the way of merchandising one's gifts and ministry for the sole purpose of making money. It's using the spiritual for the material. <clears throat> if we were to look in Revelation 2.14, we would see that Balaam taught Balak, the king, that the fastest way to destroy Israel would be to corrupt them from the inside out, to get the nation of Israel to defile themselves with the heathen nations around them. 
so the heir of Balaam, is thinking that they can get away with this sort of rebellion. But our God sees and our God judges. You remember what Paul said in Galatians 6, 7? God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that he will also reap. And today we may think that God doesn't see or God doesn't care or, or he's more concerned about others and, and people on this side or that side and we're just a little bitty person and God doesn't care so much about us and he's not really got his eye on us so I'm going to get away with this. Let me just inform you this morning, remind you today, you get away with nothing. The all-seeing eye of God sees everything about you. He knows the words you will say the rest of the day. He knew from the, from the foundations of history itself the words that you would say, the thoughts that you would think, the actions that you would do. It's but the grace of God that he would even redeem us, knowing all that we would do, knowing all of the, the evil and the propensity that we have within us to sin. God is not mocked. Whatever we sow, we will also reap. So they followed the way of Cain. They abandoned themselves to Balaam's heir. Then he says they perished in Korah's rebellion. Number 16, we see this story of Korah. Korah was a Levite. He was someone who was in the service of God, but he wanted to be the servant of God. He looked at Moses and he was jealous. He had some followers, and that's usually what happens in church life is, is you get disgruntled and you want what someone else has, and so you get a, some people on your team and you begin to rally your support and you rival someone else. And that's taking place here in the wilderness as the people of God are traveling to the promised land. Korah met his match. He didn't meet Moses. That wasn't his match. He met the Lord God Almighty. And if you remember that story, God intervenes. I, I read it this morning in my devotion time. God intervened in this situation. And, and, and the Bible tells us that the ground opened up around Korah and all of his followers, his family and everything, and it sucked them up. I mean, can you imagine being in that scene and just seeing that? I, I would have just been awestruck. Oh, goodness, I will never step I will never transgress against God again because if he has the power to open the earth and just swallow me whole, he's got to be God. That's what he did. And anytime we stand against the truth of God and the word of God, we put ourselves in that sort of danger. Kor and his followers dared God to do anything about their rebellion and God answered their dare. Jude goes on to further describe these false teachers in verses 12 and 13. He says they project the image of holiness, but nothing more than, they're nothing more than blemishes. In the ESV it says they are hidden reefs. Another translation could be they are hidden blemishes. They are filthy spots on your skin. That's what Peter says. So they are filthy and gross and nasty. They're basically like pimples on your skin, and yet they're supposed to be spotless and blameless as they are worshiping at your love feast. You see the imagery there. If you remember the Levitical law, you couldn't bring anything that had blemish and offer it as a holy sacrifice to God. It had to be spotless and blameless. And so these people, these charades, looked the part, dressed the part, but inside, as Jesus said to the Pharisees, they're nothing more than a whitewashed tomb full of dead men's bones. He goes on to say they're shepherds who only care about themselves. Rather than being concerned about the people, they only care about themselves. In other words, they're using the sheep, if you will, if you'll carry this image further, they're using the sheep for their own gain. Jesus had a lot to say about that. He goes on to say they're empty clouds. 
They're trees without fruit and without roots. He says they're uprooted. They're twice dead. In other words, in the late autumn when the trees should have fruit, they have none. It's a picture of death. Things that are growing, things that are healthy have fruit, right? Any farmers in here? You know that if you have crops that are healthy, you have crops that are growing, then you have crops that are producing. He says these, these trees have no fruit in late autumn when they should have fruit. And the reason they have no fruit is because they've been uprooted. They're dead on both ends. The roots are dead. The vine is dead. That's the picture of these false teachers. He says they're wild waves casting up shameful garbage on the seashore. They are like wandering and undependable stars that lead us astray. And so as he says this, as he uses this image, he's not speaking of the stars because they're fixed. What he's using is the image of the of the meteorite that's going across the sky. It's moving from one place to the other. You can't ever follow it because it's unsure. And that's what these false teachers are. They're not taking you to the Word of God, which is a sure foundation. They're taking you to an unstable foundation, which will always lead you astray. So for these, the gloom of utter darkness is reserved. Because our God sees their sin, and He sees the rebellion that's leveled against His Word. And so that takes us to a second truth, and I need to hurry. The Lord will judge. Verse 14 <clears throat> There, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. Do you see the repeti- repetition that he's using here? He begins this passage talking about Enoch. We know very little about this man named Enoch. We find him, his story in Genesis 5, verses 18 through 24. Hebrews 11, 5 picks up and talks about Enoch in the, in the hall of faith, if you will. And then here in Jude, verses 14 and 15, we see uh, another description of Enoch. Jude here refers to him as the seventh from Adam. What's that all about? That's simply describing and distinguishing him from the other Enoch in Genesis chapter 4 as well. That Enoch is the son of Cain. If you go back to chapter 4 of Genesis, you have two lines. You've got a godly line of Seth, and you've got a wicked line of Cain. And so he's, he's differentiating between the two. He says, this Enoch, the seventh from Adam, he is the one who was godly. And he lived, we know about this man, he lived in a society that was rapidly becoming polluted and destroyed by sin. In fact, this society that Enoch walked in was so rampant, so sinful, that it was reprehensive to Enoch. Because Enoch was a man, the Bible says, that walked with God. He was a man who kept his life clean, ministered as a prophet, and announced God's judgment. And here, Jude is quoting from an apocryphal book. He's quoting from the apocryphal book of First Enoch. And you say, why in the world would he be quoting from that sort of book? That's not Holy Scripture. Well, just because he quoted from First Enoch doesn't say First Enoch is Holy Inspired Scripture. You remember Paul? Paul many times would quote the the Roman philosophers, the Greek philosophers. And so that's not to say that God's Spirit ordains and and stamps with approval everything that those prophets, or I should say poets, said. It's just to say that all truth is God's truth. And here, first Enoch's making a good statement, a truthful statement, about Enoch as a prophet of God who stood for truth in his day. So Enoch's prophecy more than likely was referring to the coming judgment in the flood. So in that godless age, if you remember going back to Genesis chapter 6, how godless and wicked that 
culture was. In that age in which Enoch lived, it seemed that the godless were getting away with their, with their god, ungodliness, getting away with their sin. So Enoch, preaching as the prophet of God, made it clear that the Lord saw their sin and that he would judge their sin. Knowing that God sees your sin and will judge your sin has a twofold effect upon us. It's terrifying to know that God sees our sin because you know what comes with that, right? You, you knew when you were growing up and, and when you found out that mama knew what you did, you felt that, right? Oh, gosh. Or daddy knew. Or you had to go home, you know, you got in trouble at school and you knew that as soon as dad walks through the door, you had to stand up and, dad, I, I did this today. And you knew what would come, right? No one wants to face the wrath of mom or dad in that situation. And so to know that God sees your sin and will judge your sin is a terrifying thing for us as believers. But it's also a satisfying thing. Because we know that all of the atrocities in our world will never go without justice. They will all be dealt with. God will judge their sin. That is what Enoch was preaching and we know that it was true because of the flood. And so today, in our godless culture, in our ever-increasing culture of sin, it may seem at times that evil and evildoers are flourishing. I mean, we live in a day and age in which we are actually now debating whether or not it is good and right to legalize the sex industry. Right? What, what world are we living in today in American culture? That we would actually look at that and say, that is a, that is a good and profitable and taxable industry. But that's the world of America today. Judah reminds us here that the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all the ungodly ones. Notice the repetition. Four times he says all. You think God sees all of your sin? You better believe it. He sees all of the sin, all of the ungodliness. He sees everything. Four different times he says all. And you know what all means? Oh, it's pretty simple. It's not real hard. Then he says four different times, ungodly. I don't know about you, when I first read that, I was like, why is he saying this so much? That's not really good grammar. Why would you keep using the same word over? And it's to reinforce. God understands and he knows the ungodliness and the ungodly in this world. He sees them and he will judge them. That's the point Jude is making. So we, as the people of God, as we contend for the faith, once for all delivered to the saints, we don't take justice in our hands. No, we stand upon the word of God and we allow God to be God because he will bring judgment and justice to all sin. And we know this is truth because of the character of God. Do you know the term immutability? You ever heard of that term? God is an immutable God. It means that he's changeless. See, one of the characteristics of God is that he does not change. Malachi 3 assures us of this. God does not change. And we can rest in God. We can stand back in the justice of God knowing that he does not change. And this leads us to a third truth that I'm going to do relatively quickly. You know how that is. Thirdly, the Lord has judged. See, we can be assured that God sees and God will judge because he gives us an example. Three examples in verses 5 through 7 that he has already judged sin and sinners. Verse 5, now I want to remind you, although once you fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. 
and the angels who did not stay within their position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So clearly, Jude tells us, here are three examples of the justice of God being unleashed upon the sinful of the world. He speaks of faithless Israel. He speaks of those rebellious angels. And he speaks of some immoral Gentiles. Now let's just look at these three examples and, um, and, and then I'll land the plane. The first example involved the Exodus. You remember this story, right? Exodus, the whole book of Exodus is about God going down using Moses to deliver his people who've been in bondage for 400 years. And in Exodus 3.19, it says that only by a mighty hand could Israel be, be let go or brought out of this powerful empire. Egypt was the greatest empire the world knew at that point in history. And so not all of Israel, we learn quickly after that, in fact, we learn even as Moses is going through this uh, regiment of going back and forth to the, to the Pharaoh, you know, those ten plagues. We see some of the people coming to Moses and saying, Moses, you're, you're causing us all kinds of problems. Please just hush. Please stop. You, now we don't even get straw for the bricks, but we've got to continue to make the ma- same amount of bricks. Stop what you're doing, Moses. You're hurting us. And he says, I've got to do what God's called me to do. I've got to deliver you as the people of God. And so we see right off the bat that not all of the people of Israel as Romans would say, are of Israel. Not all of them were people of faith. And so many of them were people who doubted. Many of them were those who murmured against God. And despite God's many demonstrations of power and provision, they simply would not believe God. Uh, This morning I also read in my my quiet time, it just happens to fit where the message is. The reference Jude is, is making here is of the wilderness wanderings and the reason for that. Numbers chapter 13 and 14. You remember what happens there? God, which I, I never caught this before. Because I've heard preachers make jokes that, you know, anytime you get a committee together, you just might as well expect chaos. And it's sort of, they always kind of put it back on the church or on the pastor appointing a committee to go do something rather than just going and doing it yourself. Because you know that not everyone's probably going to be faithful. But you read the text, it says that God told Moses to send these 12 men, right? So this was a God-ordained thing. And in his foreknowledge, he knew 10 would come back with a bad report, but he still told Moses to send these 12. And so these 12 come back. Joshua and Caleb say, it's everything. In fact, they all testified. This is everything God said it was. it's, It's prime. It's ready. It's perfect for us. It is a land flowing with milk and honey in that biblical language. But 10 of them said... Yeah, but the Nephilim are there. The Nephilim are living there, and and we're like grasshoppers in their sight. They're these giants, and we're like these little bitty people. There's no way that we could ever conquer this land. And Joshua and Caleb were like, no, boys, we can surely do this. We've got to do this. God is sending this to do this. I mean, our God is great. He brought us through the Red Sea. He plagued Israel. We we ransacked, not Israel, we, we plagued Egypt. We ransacked Egypt. We did all of this, not because we have power, but because God did it. We can do this. But they led the people astray. And so God judged Israel and said, this wicked generation will not see the promised land. For 40 years, you're going to wander around in this wilderness. One year for every day that you were seeking out and spying out this land and coming back with this bad report. 
God, judge them. This is the example Jude gives us of the fact that God is a just God. The second example involved angels who left their proper position of authority, as Jude put it. There's a lot of debate here as to which angels Jude is referring to. Some would argue the references of angels, those who, you know, the third of angels who with Lucifer uh, rejected God, rebelled against God, and were cast out of the presence of God and came to earth. Others would argue that these angels, Jude references, uh, sought to invade earth. And so they would point you to Genesis chapter 3 where it says the sons of God came into the daughters of man. And so their idea is that these, these demons cohabited with women and produced an ungodly demonic offspring that became these giants that Genesis 6 talks about, thus this pagan, godless, wicked culture that God condemned and judged through the flood. And so there's much debate about what actually Jude is referring to. There's much debate on whether or not that Genesis 6 passage refers to angels, and I don't have time to get into all that, and it really wouldn't matter anyway because there's a lot of debate upon what interpretation is the best. And so suffice it to say this, The lesson that Jude wants us to understand is this. Angels rebelled against God, and thus they were judged by God for their rebellion. That's the example Jude has given us. The third and final example Jude offers involves Sodom and Gomorrah. You know this story. Peter also uses these cities as an example as well in 2 Peter 2.6. So the description of the people here living in these cities in both passages is that they were ungodly, that they were filthy, that they were wicked, unlawful, unjust, and given to fornication. This was their lifestyle. This was not a, a, an occasional practice in their lifestyle. This was who they were. You remember Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, uh, the angels come. Really, I think it's uh, God himself in uh, at least two persons, perhaps father and son, going to Moses and, and then going down into where Lot lived in Sodom and Gomorrah, those two cities and the surrounding areas, and the angels, actually, when they came up to Lot's house, the men of the city actually came and wanted to have Lot put those men outside so that they could have their lustful and ungodly, um, I'm trying to think of a word that's, that's churchy. <laughs> You know, it's, you know, the beauty of the Bible is that it does not cloak anything, right? I don't, I don't know if you've ever picked up on that. The Lord does not say, let's soften this a little bit so that people can, you know, kind of take it. We, we know how church is. No, the Bible just lays it out. That it is what it is. These are homosexual men who want to come and, and have homosexual relations with these angels who are visiting Lot. God judged those cities because of their perversion. And today, it's unlike, I shouldn't say it's unlike any other day. The things that we see in our culture today, we've seen in every culture on the face of the earth in all history. There's nothing new under the sun. It's just a different personification of it, right? But today in our culture, homosexuality, as I said last week, is, is becoming rampant. It's becoming socially accepted. We should welcome any and all people. It doesn't matter if you are LGBTQ or if you're as straight as a board. You are welcome to worship in our church because the greatest need in, in both people's lives and every person's life is a relationship with Jesus Christ. That does not mean that we embrace lifestyles, right? We, deal, we, we dare not take the word and dumb it down and make it more palatable so that people can, can accept it. When you do that, you dilute it from its truth and its power. 
And so we are an embracing church, though we do not embrace or tolerate lifestyles that are contrary to the Word of God. And the Word is clear when it speaks on homosexuality. God judged this city. He saw their sin and their willingness, or I should say unwillingness to repent and to walk away from that sin. And so God judged. He gives these three examples to show us that the Lord sees sin, the Lord will judge sin because He already has judged sin. This morning, in an age of tolerance, whatever that means, we need to be reminded that our God does not change. He is good. He is faithful. He is true. He is righteous. He is holy. And He at the same time is jealous and vengeful and wrathful. Malachi chapter 3. Verse 5, 6, and 7. Malachi says, then I, draw, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who, tr- who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statues and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Malachi, here in this passage, grounds us as the people of God. You see, sometimes we find ourselves adrift. Sometimes I really do believe we we wonder, where is justice? Where is God in all of this? When we hear stories of parents torturing and murdering their children, when we hear stories of of people uh, committing adultery, rampant adultery, stealing from others, we wonder, where is God and where is His justice? Well, Malachi 3 reminds us that God is a changeless God. His changelessness, His immutability assures us that He will strike against sin and He will strike against the sinner. It reminds us that He will judge evil and that we can stand back and we can rest in His justice. And at the same time, the changelessness of God assures that we as the children of God will not be consumed with His wrath even when we do sin. He says, because I don't change, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. You see, the grace and the mercy of God is free and it's available to all of us. And when we reach out and we say, Jesus, I'm a sinner and I've sinned against you and my spirit is dead and I have nothing good to offer you, but in your grace and in your mercy, I understand what you've done for me there on the cross, paying my sin debt, taking it upon your shoulders, and and that when you said to tell us that my sin was paid for, it is finished, removed as far as the east is from the west, and I'm embracing and accepting that into my life. Therefore, when we sin, and we will sin as the children of God, the changelessness of God means that His grace and mercy are always there. Forgiveness is always available. I'm grateful, and I hope you are too, that God is not a fickle God. One day feeling this way, another day feeling another way, and you just never know which side of the bed he's going to wake up on. No, our God is a changeless, immutable, rock-solid, take-it-to-the-bank type of God. What he says in his word, you will and you should take it to the bank and believe it. That's who our God is. And so his immutability assures us that as the children of God, we won't be consumed even when we've sinned. 
But we're also reminded that as Christ followers, our sin is seen by Jesus. And that he does and has judged it on the cross. And the consequences will come into our lives when we continue to, to live in that sin. We are, our fellowship is broken with him, though the relationship is not severed. We know this because of the word of God. And so we dare not live in sin. Instead, we ought to desire to have clean hands and a pure heart before the Lord. And so this morning, where are you at in your own personal life? Rather than talking about culture, talking about false teachers and all that stuff, where are you at in your personal walk with Jesus? Are you walking into guilty distance? Or are you fresh and clean before God? Your hands are clean. Your heart's clean. You're, you're where you need to be spiritually. This morning, perhaps you need to say, God, I know you see my sin, and I know you will judge my sin, but help me to see my sin because I, don't, I, I may not see it. I may not realize that I've gone astray. Open my heart, open my mind to that. Perhaps this morning you've never placed your faith in Jesus to begin with, and so that's where you need to start. But I'm grateful that we serve a God who gives us his word, and he tells us who he is. And this morning you can trust God. You can trust in his love. You can trust in his righteousness. You can trust in his grace because his word assures us. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we, um, we rejoice in the words that Jude and Peter have given us. God, they assure us that the wickedness that we see in this world, you're, you're, you're acting upon. Though from our vantage point it may seem delayed, but God, from your vantage point, the one who sees the end from the beginning, you're acting right in step. Nothing escapes your justice. And so, Lord, remind us of that. When we turn on our television set, when we read a newspaper article, when we see things in our culture that, that just make us step back and like, where in the world is God in this? What is happening to us? God, help us to remember you have never moved, but we have moved. And Lord, perhaps the reason we see what we see in our culture is because as the church, as the American church, we've moved away from you and we've moved away from your word. And so God, I pray this morning for revival in your church. Here at Red Lane, God, give us a hunger for your word, a commitment, a fresh and anew to your word. I pray that it wouldn't just be religious activity when we come on Sundays and come on Wednesdays, but God, it would be who we are. That we love your word and we love studying your word and we're allowing it to transform us into the image of Christ. That we're being Jesus to our families and we're being Jesus to our coworkers and our, we're blessing every home in our neighborhoods. Not because it's a cool cliche, but because the word has so transformed us that it can't help but be a blessing to others. I pray for a revival throughout our Southern Baptist Convention. God, I pray for awakening and revival in, in other denominations. Lord, we desperately need a fresh move of God in our country. God, it would be awesome if the spark for that began right here. Perhaps, Lord, even as I make that statement and make that request, some would scoff at that and say, well, I don't know about that. 
God, forgive us for that sort of sentiment, that sort of arrogance, that sort of disbelief. I pray for a humility that would bring us as a church to our knees. Because, Lord, that's the only place that we need to be. Our job is not to stand and shout in the street corners. Our job is not to go on television shows and rant and rave about what's happening in our culture. Our job is to get before you and pray. Seek your face and look internal and turn from our own wicked ways. God, your word says that when we begin to do that, then you'll begin to change the culture. And I believe that culture changes, changes because the people of God change. We begin to be who we're supposed to be. So as we look around at America and we get bent out of shape at what we see, and it's atrocious, God, you know that, whether than any of us. It breaks your heart to see the wickedness. I pray this morning that we would see it as our own fault and in some ways our own responsibility to change. So humble us, Lord. Pray for this morning for every individual sitting here, even those who will listen to this podcast in the weeks to come. God, I pray that you will break us. For the man, the woman, the child that needs a relationship with Jesus, God, I pray that you would bring them to that full understanding, to the greatest need in their life, to say yes to Jesus. God, may that be even true today in their life, that they would say yes to Jesus. As we move into a time of response, I pray for open hearts as you lead us. In Jesus' name, amen.